This is Deion Dawkins, man, and you're listening to The Scoop on OwlScoop.com. You already know. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Scoop Season 7, Episode 23. I'm John DiCarlo, joined again by Kyle Gauss, Dante Colinelli, Javon Edmonds, Sam Cohn is currently missing. We don't know where he is. Sam, if you're out there, please come back to us. We love you. We miss you. You're missing out on doing a podcast with an NFL player. So, you know, it's your loss. Nah, I'm like, I'm like old news to Al Scoot, man. How many, this is like my hundredth time coming on here, man. It's, you guys are the best. Nonetheless, Colin Thompson, you are an NFL player and uh, we appreciate you being with us. What's going on? Good to have you back. How have you been? I've been I've been great, guys. Just got off a honeymoon. That was great. Recharged the batteries of, with with the wife. We got married um, uh, in June, and because of the season there, we really couldn't go away. And, and met, we hung out with a lot of people from Britain, so we couldn't have a proper time. And <laughs> we had a proper time in the Bahamas, and it was it was great, man. But it's I'll be honest with you guys, it's great to be back with you guys. And you guys are the reason why I got into podcasting. I got into media to some extent. So I'm a huge Al Scoop fan. Listen all the time big supporter and i know it's cliche everyone says like great to be here but i really mean it. it's great to be here thanks to john and the team it's it's awesome to be on the house group again thank you i appreciate it. i thought you were gonna say you guys are the reason why i cut my honeymoon short to come home <laughs> i did john actually i just said hey sweetie you know we're on this little island in the bahamas it's it's just time to wrap it up you know it's, it's, it's just time to head home because i advise that <laughs> Yeah. If I ever no. get to meet Sydney, she'll punch me square in the face for that. No, she'll be like, you're right. This is more important. Temple Owls. <laughs> she's an Owls fan, man. Even though she's a Gator, Gator, Gator laxer. Um, yeah. She's a, she's an Owls fan. She's a big time. There you go. Well, this it's great to have you with us again. Um, Colin, tough year for you guys with, with, with the Panthers. Take us through, you know, the, the ups and downs of the season again. Well, there's a ton of stuff we can get into. We'll get into Stan Drayton higher. It's always easy to talk to you. We got a lot of stuff to get into, but start off with, you know, with the Panthers, you guys start off three and O lost four in a row. You won two out of your next three. Uh, and then, you know, the, the tough seven game losing streak to end the season. Um, you know, your coach, Matt rule, someone we know well, and someone you're very loyal to is taking a lot of heat and that comes with it, the, the territory, the criticism and all that stuff. What was, what was this season like for you? I know it's a lot and it's a lot to kind of contextualize in like a couple minutes, but take us through what this season was like for you guys. Cause I know it wasn't easy and it was tough. Yeah. I think there's really only one way to talk about it. And that's from like from front to back. And I was so excited for training camp this year, as well as the rest of our team. I thought our team is and was very tight through that training camp and built a lot of great memories and a lot of you know moments of great camaraderie and really with four joint practices against the Colts and Ravens as a, as a whole three preseason games you're really being forged in the fire there's no other way than to be close through all that stuff it was tough right COVID was just happening through all that you know we we it was just a whole thing we're all in this together you're all away from your family so it was a great camp we went off to Wofford University which is in Spartanburg which is like an hour and a half away from Charlotte and it was an awesome thing. And we played well. We had good preseason games. And the team looked really improved from the year before. Not that the team wasn't good the year before, but you can just tell the look 
right? It was like the year if we went from six and six at Temple to 10 and four, whatever it was. You're like, wow, this just looks different. It's really the same players, give or take a few guys, but it just looks way different. Um, and we felt that, and the whole league felt it. Obviously, you play the Jets and win. You play the Saints at home and, and just put up a ridiculous number and play unbelievably and pretty much pitch a shutout against them. And then you play the Houston Texans on Thursday night and handle business there. You know, then you come back and play Dallas and we, a good football team, and we really should have been in the game more. And we still, we didn't do well enough offensively, but defensively as well, we let up a bunch of rushing yards over like 240, I think it was. And we were only down by eight, two minutes left with the ball in our hands, you know, very doable to tie the game and go a certain, you know, a situation that we practice a bunch. So you lose to Dallas, you go to three and one, and then it kind of all ran together after that. Um, you know, get two more wins. You beat an Arizona team at the point of time when they were the hottest team in the league without Kyler Murray. And they were rolling. And we got a big win. That was Cam's first game. P.J. Walker played in that game. I think he was 22 of 29. Played really well. That was Cam's first game. Like I said, he had two touchdowns on his first two plays. Like, it was a really good thing rolling. And then really after that, the season just went downhill. So, really, we got to five and five and we beat Arizona. And the, the season was, uh, you know, we live in the moment and all that stuff that's true. We do, but the season was felt saved in a way. You're like, okay, we slipped up a really close one to the Eagles. You slipped up a close one to the Vikings. And okay, we're still alive. We're still alive. We're 500. No big deal, especially with the addition of another playoff team on each side in the AFC and NFC. So, that's kind of the lineage of the year. And then we were, you know, we rattled off a bunch of losses at the end and it just is a tough grind to get through that, but you got to see really who, who's with you and who isn't. And honestly, I could say the whole team is with you. The whole team's resilient and you get to see coach rules resiliency and all the coaching staff resiliency and toughness because it's real. As you guys know, like Charlotte market is not Philly or New York or Dallas or green Bay, but it's a football market that's had a lot of success in the sense that, you know, not too long ago, Cam Newton was at Super Bowl MVP. I mean, Cam Newton was MVP of the league and Luke Keekley and these massive stars and Christian McCaffrey and DJ Moore. There's a lot of good players that have come through there. Ryan Khalil, like legit ballers that have come through the Panthers organization, Julius Pepper. So a very proud organization that wants to have success. So there was a lot of unhappy people with us, even me of all people, the fourth tight end, third tight end, getting shredded on Twitter when I'm not even playing because Sam Darnold's wearing my podcast hat by mistake in a, um, in a, in a press conference. It's like on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, so And getting accused of paying Sam Darnold to plug my podcast. Um, and why would I have a podcast in season? I don't know how you could do that. You must not be focused on football. But that's either here nor there. I don't care or anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not salty. I'm not salty, (laughs) but uh, I'm, I'm kind of rambling on guys, but essentially it's, it's, it's it's a season of multiple, right. It's, it's not how you start. It's how you finish, right. Whether it's good or bad. And that's the truth, but there were such bright spots in the beginning and there's some bright spots in the end because of what the the resiliency and the toughness. So yeah, coach rules catching a lot of heat. We kind of all are, and I get that, but he firmly believes we firmly believe I firmly believe in what we're doing there. That's not lip service. I've seen it happen. In college, I saw it happen at Baylor from afar, heard about it all the time, and we all saw that just absolute transformation. And you see what happens in Carolina. Um, you know, and whatever happens next year, this is the first time I'll be even just saying this to myself. It doesn't take away from anything that co- who Coach Rule is a coach if things go bad, but things are going to go well, and it's only going to, you know, 
it's it's only going to go up from here. I firmly believe that. Like I, I really do firmly believe that. I, I said it before on another podcast. Like, what do you think on oh, my podcast? Actually, with our last guest, he asked me at the end, "What's Coach Rule going to be doing at you know at Carolina?" And I said, "He's going to live out the rest of his contract there, and that's what? seven years." Mm-hmm. Is so, it? Oh, go ahead, Kyle. No, so just in wrapping, and I know it's a long win away, but it's a loaded question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everything's going to be fine. And you were so mid December, you were waived and then spent the rest of the season on the practice squad. And I mean, you've always been like, you've always been saying, I'm grateful, you know, uh, I'm grateful to be in the league, um, have a roster spot to get back in the league. Still, when you, when you go to the practice squad, what is there any like anxiety with that? We were like, okay, or did you know it was coming? And what's it like to just manage those, you know, that week to week existence in the NFL? Yeah. So it's funny. I had no idea it was coming. I had my head between a massage pillow on the off day on a Tuesday at like two o'clock an Ohio number comes across my phone and usually my phone's during the massage. And this isn't a massage that like Kyle's getting and John's getting on the vacation here. And like, you know, <laughs> oh, no, I, th- I thought you were going to go a different way. <laughs> no, 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 no. This, this is the outscoop guys, not Barstool. But, you know, so, so like, no, like this isn't the massage where you're hanging out and everything's, you know, Everything's excellent. No, it's not that type of massage. It's a massage where you're getting your ass kicked by Renee. Shout out to Renee, who's the best masseuse in the world, uh, <laughs> up where I live in Charlotte. And like, I'm sitting there and I'm just about to start and I'm trying to like calm down because she's ready to dig into a knot in my neck the size of a golf ball. And my phone is ringing. I'm like, oh, my phone's on. Do not disturb. At least I thought it was, but it was not. And kind of out of nowhere, it's this Ohio number and it was one of our scouts. And that was devastating. And he just said, listen, man, we're going to cut you. We need to bring a player off the COVID list and we need to activate him. We're going to bring you back to the practice squad if you clear waivers. So between that phone call and when I got back in the building, I mean, it was, it was chaos, absolutely utter chaos. So really what happened was I, we thought it was going to get claimed by other teams. And when you go on the waiver wire, and when you get claimed by other teams, you're gone right away. You don't have a saying where you go. You have absolutely no saying what you do. You just got to go. And I had to pack up my house, buy a car, get a new driver's license, because it was right on my birthday and then expend it. it, it my driver's license ex- expired and be ready to go anywhere, which my agent thought that I was going to go. So a very uh, crazy 24 hours. The next week, my in-laws are flying in town for Christmas. My parents are flying in town for Christmas. And a really unique situation where you're just like, wow, this is where like football meets the road of personal life. Like you think it always does. And that's the pinnacle. And you always run into a personal life wall with football and you're like, wow, this sucks. But you're like, wow, I'm losing my job and my in-laws and my parents are coming to town and my wife's coming to town and I may not have a job here. I may be in wherever I may be across the country somewhere. So that was a real struggle uh, for that 24 hours. But I wanted to stay in Carolina. I wanted to be there. I wanted to see things through. Um, and I was there on the practice squad for three weeks and I was activated. The I was on the practice squad for four weeks, technically. And I was activated to the active roster against new Orleans the third weekend, which was the second to last week of the season. Um, and a close loss to new Orleans in NOLA. So again, I'm trying to tell him the backstory behind it, John, and to answer your question, what's that like? It, you're trying to be humble as possible. You're trying to be thankful as possible, but the competitor in you, you're lying to yourself. Like we're not sitting there saying that I want to play. I want to be a part of this. Um, and that was the hardest part about it. But 
truly like focus on controlling what you control and how blessed you are to be in this league and how, what a magical place it is. If you can stay in it. Um, and I'm staying in it. I'm a part of it. So no complaints out of me. Truly. I mean that that's just not, you know, football temple media communications, how to handle stress and anxiety talk and just be blank and blunt. I'm just being completely blunt and honest as possible that it was, it was a struggle, you know, because you want to be a part of the grind. You want to be a part of the solution, but I knew they believed in me in Carolina. I knew it was somewhat of a business decision because of some COVID issues on the team. And I took it in stride and, you know, was able to get a game in for the end of the season. So really thankful for that. And just awesome to be back in Carolina. You have a, Colin, you have a new offensive coordinator in Ben McAdoo again. That was, there was a lot of attention surrounding that when Matt uh, let go of Joe Brady and, you know, everybody had an opinion on that, of course. Um, and now your new offensive coordinator is a guy who, who had some great seasons with the Giants. What I, what do you, what do you think of it? I mean, what are you looking forward to in terms of working with him in the future? Ben was the head coach when I actually signed undrafted with the Giants. Yeah. So I have somewhat of a relationship with him as the undrafted tight end. And the first round pick tight end was Evan Ingram. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't, we weren't that close, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you know what, because of the temple connection, honestly, and how he knows coach rule, I was able to have some conversations with him a little yeah. bit. And I really didn't make it much past the first. I was only there like three days after the first preseason game because mm-hmm. I had emergency appendectomy, which we've talked right. about on here before. So I don't know him that well, coach, but I mean, it's exciting times. I mean, I love Joe Brady and Joe and I were very close and we did a lot of awesome things. And it's a shame it came down, it came down to that. You never want to see anybody lose their job. But I mean, Coach McAdoo, obviously, he's a season successful head coach and a season successful offensive coordinator that's done some great things. So, I'm excited to get to know him, get to know the offense, get involved in it in April and kind of learn what we're going to do differently and learn what we're doing the same. Now, Colin, shifting a little bit to, to Temple, you know, your alma mater, uh, recently, obviously, kind of a tumultuous time with the football program. Rod Carey gets let go at the end of November. Uh, Stan Drayton comes from Texas, kind of takes the reins. From the outside looking in or maybe just having spoken to people that know Stan Drayton, what are your, kind of your your thoughts on on the hire? Well, I'm talking – to a few people about Coach Drayton, I think the one main thing is how good of a guy he is and how hard he works. And that's that's just a, that's awesome. You know, I don't really want to talk about Coach Carey. I never really was around Coach Carey. Privately, talking to John, talking to Temple people, I wasn't happy about what was going on there. All the alumni were not happy what's going on there. Is that a hot take? Can I speak for everybody? Yes, I can, right? It's not, it's not, a, it's not a bold statement saying that we were unhappy with what was going on. But publicly, you know, you just can't talk about that stuff when it's going down because you want to see it through and give them their chance. So with Coach Drayton, I mean, I think the sky's the limit. He just has the it factor. Just some of the things you see on social media, which, again, we all know is really nothing to do with football, but it kind of has something to do with it. He controls all that stuff. And he controls the message. He controls the narrative. He controls the face of the franchise. He controls the whole program. And everything I'm hearing so far is just awesome things. The kids love him. The kids love playing for him. The kids are excited to be back on the grind. This is the hardest time of year in college football. You're the farthest time away from your season. But it's the hardest grind you got to do when it comes to, uh, you know, your offseason running, your conditioning. you got spring ball, which is on, you know, on the horizon, which is brutal and physical. At least when I was there with Coach Rule, it was. Um, so I'm hearing great things, guys. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys have talked about them here quite a bit, but 
everything looks like it's, it's turning the page and, you know, alumni are going to be back in the building now that COVID reads is out. And in my opinion, that's the lifeblood of, of kind of the backbone, the supporters, you know, of the programs, the alumni, they know all the high school coaches, they know all the local people in the area, they know all the former coaches, they can really help change a program. And that's something I thought that Jeff Collins did really well. And John, I talked about it before. I wouldn't be in the NFL today if it wasn't for Jeff Collins. There's literally no way because Jeff said, hey, listen, you can come train here. You don't know the strength coach and Dave Feely, but he's really good. You can train with Dave. And he's one of the best in the business. I was like, okay, great. Where am I going to pull my stuff? He's like, don't worry about it. There's going to be 10 lockers for all the legends, for all the former players, which was unbelievable and just life-changing. So I know Coach Drayton's trying to do similar things there. So um, and Coach, Coach Ed Foley's really close to him and was close to him when they coached together at Penn. And Coach Foley and I are very close. And he couldn't have better things to say about the guy. So good times ahead, man. I'm really excited for what's going on. You know, one of the kind of, I guess, uh, moves that Coach Drain made, Sandra made, that really resonated well with the uh, the fan base is the rehiring of Chris Wiesahan, who obviously was not your position coach at Temple, but somebody that I'm sure you're very familiar with. I'm wondering if you can kind of describe how big of a move that was for Stan Drain to bring a guy like Chris Wiesahan back in from Georgia Tech, and maybe if you can just offer your general impressions or any stories you have about Wies. I'll tell a couple. We, we didn't like each other our first time, we, you know, each other. That's for sure. I was like the, 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 my personality when I come in is I want to know, I want to learn, but I also have some knowledge and I'm talking to them and, and communicating with them. Like, this is that, and this is that, and this is how I want to do this play. And this play looks good here and all these different things, but I was saying it wrong. And I didn't realize that he kind of put me in my place and we didn't get along great. And I was like, man, I don't like this guy at all. And come to find out, he's probably one of my favorite coaches of all time. Um, one of the smartest coaches I've ever been with. A great recruiter, great relationship builder, and just a great human. The guy who texts you on your birthday, the guy that texts you Happy New Year, the guy that texts you Merry Christmas, how's your family doing? And, you know, people do that, and it's really nice. But to really ask how your family's doing and how you're doing, that's Chris Wiesahan. I mean, he, he's a tremendous person, tremendous dad. Open his house up to us when we were at Temple. Open his house up to me when I was driving through Georgia Tech in Atlanta. There's a great guy. I can't say enough how big of a hire this is for Coach Drayton, Coach Sam Drayton. I think it's absolutely massive. And I think the really big part about it is it bridges the gap between kind of the rule and Collins' former players, the rule and Collins' former coaches. Because, again, I think they're the lifeblood. I think they're the guys that are – we're in Carolina. We're talking about it every day. You know, what – up a temple what's this what's that they're recruiting this kid from this high school they're recruiting this kid from that high school you know the coach there do we have contacts like i think that stuff matters and i probably didn't realize it until i got out but your impact as, a, as alumni can, can really is massive um and coach weezahan bridges that gap i mean you see the relationship him and Dion dawkins have you know Dion, arguably him and hassan reddick are the most publicly touted, deservedly so, notable players, two Pro Bowl players out of Temple. Um, and they are, you know, very close with Weez. I know Dion's very close with Weez, and, and it credits a lot of his success to Weez. So an unbelievable hire, a great guy, and a great football coach in all of it. We talked about who he is as a person. That's all I've been talking about. But you want to talk about a guy that like deserves to be a head coach. I mean, that's like the type of person that Chris is, Coach Weez, and when it comes to football stuff, there's, there's no really smarter person. Uh, he can do a little bit of everything. He can coach every position. He has coached every position. And 
just a massive hire. Can't say enough good things about him. Uh, Colin, I wanted to ask you about what you want to see from this coaching staff from like a scheme perspective. I mean, just like particularly on offense, you know, I was the guy who, who had to write a lot of like the instant analysis pieces for after the football games. And it just felt like Temple was like constantly pulling teeth to pick up yards. Like that's like a very general way to put it, but it, everything just seems so hard for them. So what do you want to see from this staff as far as like opening up that offense again this year? I think the key for things offensively as a coach myself down here at the high school level is doing what your kids do. Don't do what you do best. So like, for instance, down here at high school, I coach at Lower Cape May Regional, and we have great players and good kids, but we can't line up in 22 personnel with two tight ends and two fullbacks and run power eye and look like Iowa in the 90s. But that's really what I know. So I, when I started coaching down here and I was with XFL and Mark Tressman and all these different things, I was like, all right, we're going to bring the spread. We're going to do an RPO. We're going to make it simple but easy and efficient. So personnel-wise at, at Temple, I know a lot of players have left in transfer. I know – the team does not look like it looked like when I was there with Cole Boozer, myself, and Nick Sharga and Rocco Armstead, and some absolute beasts when it comes to just physically imposing your will, like a Deion Dawkins offensively. And then big wideouts like Keith Kirkwood and Ventel and Robbie Anderson and John Christopher and Brandon Shippen. You know, I know we could run that power eye system, but I don't know what they have there. I don't think that was what they have from when I watch games. So, really, for me, what you want for Temple is just efficiency, guys. Like, you want to watch the game and be like, okay, they're running what's best for their group. Right? Like, at the end of the day, like, that's what has to be done. Um, and that's all I want as a fan, as a spectator, as someone who's going to watch the film from an all-22 copy like we talked about off-air. Like, are they running what works for them? Do they have the big O-line? Do they have a smaller O-line? Do they have a pocket passer? Do they have a mobile quarterback? So – it should be interesting to see how it all pans out with the transfers, with the new system. It's going to look like, and there's going to be new wrinkles of a new coach, but it's, are we doing, is Temple doing what's needed to fit their system? Because that's the most important thing, in my opinion. Colin, it seemed like a lot of people had a lot of opinions about your Carolina Panthers this year, uh, especially with the quarterback situation with uh, Sam Darnold and Cam Newton uh, platooning for probably what the last quarter of the season. What was, your thoughts on that, being in that tight end room? Yeah, it's definitely a unique situation. I know everyone's come out before and say, oh, you can't do it with two quarterbacks. You know, Sam Darnold got hurt against Atlanta, and that changed a lot of things. It was P.J., and then P.J. was there for a week, and then Cam came in. You know, so it's a unique situation. It really is, where you have multiple quarterbacks that can do all different things and bring all different facets to the game. Um, so – Obviously, it wasn't working the way we probably wanted it to based off the record and based off our success offensively, but at times it looked really good. I mean, we played that Buffalo game. It got opened up at the end, but that was a tight football game. We play, That's a good football team, as you guys all saw the other day. We played them at home and played them really tough. Uh, you play New Orleans in the Superdome. I don't care who they have or what's going on. That place is really hard to play in. It's very hard to communicate, uh, i.e. the first play of the game for us kind of – Blew up in my face a little bit, just couldn't communicate, and it was so loud, and that was all me. But long story short, uh, you know, we, we play teams tough, and that's that's a credit to the staff. That's a credit to the coaches. That's a credit to the quarterbacks. That's a credit to everybody. There's a lot of pride in that room. And, you know, it was unique with Cam Newton. You know, this is – Cam's not just a star. Cam's not just another pro bowler. Cam Newton is one of the best 
football players ever touched this planet. He's one of the most outgoing, just intriguing players I ever played with that was super smart. His meetings, I said this to somebody too. I said, I haven't been in a meeting like that. And that's not a discredit to any quarterback I've been with. I just, we had a, like a protection meeting and I just happened to sit in on it. And his meeting was like an Eli Manning run meeting. And I know people have a ton of respect for Eli and his brain, his skill set. So, I mean, that's where I compare it, you know, mentally. And then physically, you know, we all know what Cam was in his prime could do, but I saw he could still do a lot of great things. He just, you know, he's just one of the biggest human beings I've ever played with and and just an absolute beast. So, obviously, the two-system quarterback is not something I think they're trying to do in the future. I don't know what they're doing personnel-wise. It's kind of not my role, but I really don't want to speak on it. But it was an interesting thing to see, that's for sure. Hey, Colin, we have a, a couple of mailbag questions here that I wanted to kind of bring into the fold and the flow of the conversation. One, you kind of touched on this already, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway just to get it out there. This is a message board question from the screen name is 82 Al. From an outsider with inside connections that may be able to speak more openly on the issues of the past coaching staff, is there anything you can share? I I know you said earlier you didn't want to say too much about Rod Carey, but is there anything along those lines when you when you look back at what you thought went wrong or what didn't, you know, what what could have been done, what should have been done, or anything that you could share? Or is that something you'd just rather not touch? Yeah, so I'll touch on it. And it's a mm -hmm. great question. And I went to Temple School of Media and, you know, journalism. We know how to answer these <laughs> questions here. Um, you're, on the no, steering, I, you're on the steering committee for the Claire Smith Sports Media Center, too, I should say. So yeah, yes, grateful yes, to have you there. Hum very humble to be a part of it and uh, an awesome thing that we've got going on there. But, no, you know what I think went wrong with the Rod, the Rod Carey situation? If you really look back at it and just see what happened was just relationship building. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, right, like, like call space, space, like, I could, I could have people, I could have 50 people in the building that I know or nobody in the building that I know. And that's not hard to see. Like nothing made me more upset. Again, we talked about this before the Temple football fans, Facebook page that everyone listening to this is probably on. The reason why those players transferred guys was not the, the was not the portal, right? It was because there was issues in the building. Like that's what happened. Like good programs that are winning, they don't have transfers. Their fourth and fifth string guys transfer, or they go to different schools because they're not going to play right away. But just the bottom line is this, and I don't know Rod, and I don't feel comfortable speaking about him or anybody on the staff because I really don't know them. Probably outside of Gabe Infante, who thinks a great guy and a great coach, but that's the only person I really know because he was at St. Joe's Prep when I was at Archbishop Wood um, and flew next to Gabe when I flew to away games when I was calling games the first year with Rod's tenure. But I think it's just relationship building, guys, to answer the question. The other mailbag question we have here, the screen name uh, from the message board is what, what to you question is who was Collins picked to be the next head coach at Temple? Oh, who was my pick? I mean, these are good questions. Good thing. I went to good, good thing. I went to Temple. Um, yeah, I'll be on the hot honest. seat here. Yeah. I'll be completely, completely honest. I wanted what was best for the university and I don't know what's best for the university. I don't personally. I'll say this at the time I wanted a former coach rule disciple, which myself and every other temple football player would want. And the reason why I wanted those people, one of those people is not because of a Fran Brown, a Mike Saravo, Elijah Robinson, an Ed Foley. There's a couple more I'm leaving out. I'm sure Jeff Nixon, whoever those people are, they're all great coaches and great guys, great men, awesome people that I've been able to get to know. But the one reason why 
is because of all the great assistance that would come along with them. All the great assistance that no one knows about. All the people that are underlining, former Temple players, former Baylor players, former people that have kind of joined them at Baylor or joined them at Temple or, you know, were a part of like a Kevin Gilbride, who was my tight end coach with the Bears and the Giants, or like a Sean Desai, who was the former defensive coach or the defensive coordinator of the Bears, or like all the underlining people that spent a year or two at Temple with Coach Rule or a year or two at Baylor. Like all those assistants are such good football coaches. They're really good. And I've been lucky to be coached by a lot of them. Um, and, you know, you, you may or may not realize it in time, but I've been traveling in my football career. So you kind of know the difference at this point. But Temple Tufts a real thing. And it's kind of a badge that you can really see on guys. Um, so that's the reason why I wanted one of the coach rule guys there is because of a Chris Weeds in here, because of a Cole Boozer who's now there as a GA. And, and Coach Drayton's doing a lot of the same stuff that a, a former coach rule disciple would do uh, because. Hey, you know, there's proof in the pudding. Chris Weezhan is one of my favorite guys out of that whole group for sure. Have you guys heard me talk about him before? Hey, Colin, uh, we talked about this once before, but when the inquirer's Mike Jensen wrote about the coaching search, he floated your name out there. Um, what was your reaction to that? And we talked about you've been on the lower Cape May regional staff, so coaching isn't really a new thing to you, but is it something you want to do when you're done playing? It's a great question. I get asked this all the time. Sorry if that was loud there. Um, it's a million dollar question. It's something I want to do for sure. I have such passion for it. I love the game. I love uh, the, the, the X's and O's. I love the, the relationships around the game because that's what it's all about, in my opinion, is the relationships. At the end of the day, playing is playing, and that's the main thing. Don't get me wrong, but the relationships in football are unbelievable. They're a part of your family. Uh, they mean the world to me, and coaching brings that. You get to change people's lives. I love coaching high school because you get to really change people's lives, but you get to do the same in college. You can do the same in the NFL a little bit. But, you know, I think I'll be completely honest, and I try to be on this podcast as much as possible, is I think the lifestyle is what scares me away from it. I think the lifestyle, yeah, it's a grind, and I love the grind. Don't get me wrong. I do it as a player. But the lifestyle as a coach and being around family – and being around friends and, you know, watching your kids play football and baseball and basketball or ballet or whatever they decide to do to be able to, to miss all those things is really hard. And you really got to love to do it. So it's something that I'll have to decide when I'm done playing, but it will be a family decision. It won't be my decision alone. Colin, I was curious if you could kind of bring us in uh, what it's like to, to be around a guy like Christian McCaffrey is just like a, otherworldly talent at the running back position. Well, what's it like lining up to that guy and just, and just getting to watch him go to work? As I, I've never seen anything like it. Christian McCaffrey is the most dedicated, most driven, competitive uh, player I've ever played with. And I played with some unbelievable competitors and workhorses and disciplined human beings. And Christian fits all that. He's the five-tool player. He really is. There's nothing like him. Uh, I've ever seen before. The guy can catch, he can block, he can run, he's smart, he's articulate, he communicates, he's a great leader, he's can coach every position. Um, he's just, he's a football lifer. He's got it in his blood. Obviously, everyone knows his dad, all his brothers played. His mom was an All-American soccer player at Stanford. They're just athletes, and they're just hard workers, and they do it the right way. Um, Christian's been unbelievable as a, as a friend, as a mentor, even though he's like two or three years younger than me, which is weird to say. Um, he's a great, great guy. And, 
you know, there's all these rumors about him leaving all these different things. Uh, I hope, I hope he doesn't because he's, he's one of the best. He's truly one of the best I've ever been around and just an unbelievable human being. Uh, Colin, we get a lot of guff about getting a little too off the beaten path sometimes on this podcast. So I'm going to try, you know, try to stick this straight and narrow, but we have a mailbag question here from Lyle. Wait, hold on. Hold on. People get on you guys for getting off the beaten path. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So if you're behind your wheel right now and like, you, you just, just, just kick it down a notch, you know, like bring that cruise control that down a little bit. You're upset because what you're listening to isn't all about temple athletics. That, that's the, the vocal minority, I would say, is how yeah, I would okay. describe that. No, yeah, we're good. Kind of, <laughs> go ahead. What do we got, John? Oh, it's what Kyle. People say? But it's fine. <laughs> oh, no, no, but I thought, I thought, I thought, I know it's Kyle. I thought John chimed in in the back. I thought, I thought John cleared the lozenger out and was coming from the back here. I thought that we were getting <laughs> no. no, I was yeah. just laughing. Go ahead, Kyle. No. From go ahead, user, Kyle. Sorry. From username uh, Lyle Gauss, uh, wants <laughs> to know who is your favorite Peloton instructor? As wow. I, I see you on the bike, I see you out there. I saw once you got a new offensive coordinator, I saw Colin Thompson the next day on that Peloton. Uh, really? Yeah. So I was curious. Who, who, who oh, you like man. working you know, out with? I, I don't – I just take like – I just jump on whatever ride's available on the Peloton when it comes to like the slow ride. Like I'm not – it depends what I'm doing, right? Like I, I was – if in the beginning, I was like, all right, I need to do a little something today, get moving. I already swam today. But the beginning of our talk, I was like, when I was talking 100 miles an hour because I was on the Peloton. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I need to jump off this and slow things down and, and sound like a proper, you know, Temple Media and comm student here. Um, so I don't have a favorite, to be honest, you guys. I have favorite classes. Like if I want to like really kill myself after a lift and a swim and a run, I'll jump on the bike and just absolutely murder my legs and just click on whatever, like 80s pop and, and just go. And then – but the, I would say 95% of the time on the 15 minute cool down, my wife, Sydney, like gets after it though. Like I'm watching TV up here and I just hear somebody just absolutely screaming at her. So, and she always comes up in the steps, barely able to walk up them, you know? So the Peloton has been great and it's been a great investment for us. Now, how can you see Kyle? Do we follow each other on there? I follow you. You might not follow me. No, no, don't, 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 don't play this whole, I'm big time. <laughs> Listen, I know we're, I know. So, so I need to, and apologize to, uh, you know, Paulie in South Philly here who's listening, <laughs> who's upset because we're talking about Pelotons and they may not know what they are. I see. I follow, I'm a, I guess I won't say your username. I see you in Cape May. I'm on there. I, I don't got to follow back. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out. I'll, there. I'll follow you back. <laughs> I think, I think it's Colin Thompson 86. I'll appreciate any follow you can get, but don't, you're not going to be impressed folks. Um, you're not going to be impressed now, not at all. I can, I will say, uh, I, as somebody that works a, you know, white collar job, I truly appreciate the, I have something to do, but I could do the Peloton at the same time move. I truly appreciate that because it's a game saver for like, this is a meeting that I really shouldn't be on, but I have to be on. I'm just going to knock out my Peloton workout at the same time. I jumped on a little 15 minute cool down. I probably did half of it just to get the body moving. Yeah. Um, you know, it just it's all dangerous. Like yes. Yeah, Colin, we've been criticized recently for getting off topic. We've got great personalities on this podcast. Javon's very funny. Sam, who is with us, by the way, as you know, because he asked you a question. He wasn't here. Sam, we, we put out a missing persons report for you at the beginning of the, of the pod, but we still love you. I uh, Yeah, I texted Dante and I was like, I didn't get the Zoom link, but it's because the notification didn't come up my email. And I was like, how did no huh. one text me that you guys were hopping on and waiting for me? Anyway, so, I, just that's something you got to notification bring up, coming in. Bring that up with the... <laughs> 
as as Pauly from South Philly slamming on his wheel again, talking about getting back to the Temple thing. That's something you got to take up with John McCarlo, your fearless leader. That's exactly right. <laughs> Kyle, actually, before we close things out, I wanted to ask you a couple other quick things. I mean, I'd be remiss, it would be remiss if we didn't ask you about the games this past weekend. I mean, everybody has talked about how crazy they were, how wonderful they were. They're, you know, certainly tough if you're a Bills fan and um, just everything was crazy. I mean, sounds like the obvious question, but are they just playing at a different level than everybody else right now? When you look at what Mahomes did and Josh Allen and and just everything that we saw, what were your thoughts on it just as a, as a guy who plays in the league, but also as a fan? I've never seen anything like that in my entire life. Not even remotely close. I mean, did we see a bad throw the whole game? I mean, maybe. I don't remember the whole game. Mm. There wasn't even any penalties, I don't think. There was like a handful. Mm. I, I was I was like absolutely blown away. It was like, now, it wasn't great football if you're a defensive person, so you can't okay. say it was a perfect football game, but it's probably a perfect football game for a viewer and a fan. Um, but, I mean, just unbelievable the throws that they were making, unbelievable the routes that everyone's doing. I mean, Kelsey at the end there is just saying, I, I, went, to, I went to Mahomes, which this doesn't happen, guys. Like, you don't do your own thing on a football field. Like, that just doesn't happen. Kelsey was probably supposed to – he was by himself. He was the lone man to the left there on the short side of the field. When he ran that little glance route, a little five five step, just kind of break in, kind of like a skinny post situation, and he kind of throttled and caught it and laid down, and they kicked the field goal, and you know they they went to overtime. Uh, you know he just went to Mahomes and said, "This is what I'm going to do," and then you can hear Mahomes saying, "Do it, do it, do it," and it worked. I mean that that doesn't happen in football, guys. That shows how much they are, how close they are. Um, obviously, they, they you know both Hall of Famers. So you know I think. That's the best football game I've ever seen. I know that's just just that's a lot. That's a heavy word, but that that was unbelievable. Between that, the box game, which I listened to on the radio and was able to listen to, uh, we were driving home from the honeymoon. Was able to listen to the uh, the Bucks radio broadcast, which I wanted to put on because I thought they were going to come back and win it when it was whatever. They had three points, and they couldn't convert on fourth downs. Like even in the fourth quarter, like they literally came back in like ten minutes. It was like insane. Um, so what a great game. Deion Dawkins played great. And then uh, Ryan Bates, who was a Penn State guy, who went to Archbishop Wood, played next to him at left guard. And we were buddies from high school. So that was really cool for me to watch Deion and him the whole game. And just, a, just an unbelievable environment. I, you know, full transparency. I texted Deion and Ryan Bates right after the right after there's 13 seconds left and the ball was kicked out of the back of the end zone. I said, unbelievable game, boys. Congrats on the win. Let's go, Bills. Uh, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> did you get a response to that, or is that just in the ether somewhere? So I texted them both and said, hey, you know. My bad. I'm, my bad. <laughs> Great season. You know, they'll both be back next year with the Bills. So they got back to me. It was all good. But I real, don't quick, know. real quick, related to that, a, a wizard comes down and says, hey, Colin Thompson, you're Roger Goodell for the day. Like, you're the commission in the NFL. How do you fix NFL overtime? Do you don't you have – do you, you think it's fine the way it is? I think it's fine. I think if the Chiefs won – I mean, if the Bills won the game, this is not even coming up. But I think the vast majority of America wanted the Bills to win that game. I wish there was a poll. I don't know right? if like, it's that or if it's just that the game literally ended with this this fantastic game, two quarterbacks at the top of their, their game, and Josh Allen doesn't get a chance in overtime to touch the ball. It's the only. Oh, I, it's the only. Point. It's the only sport that does that, right? Like every other sports is like, hey, we're going to play another period, and then we'll I figure think, it out. I think the initial change they made a couple of years back 
to say, listen, if you kick a field goal, it's not a walk-off. That's not a walk-off. You got to go down and score. And I think that makes it somewhat fair. And here's why, guys. And it's player safety and health. And I know that's a bore fest for fans. And Paulie's slamming on the wheel again. But the point is, literally, the, the number one issue is this. Those rosters only have 46 guys playing. That's it. 46. 53 on the active roster, seven are inactive, and 46 play. So you're telling 46 players, and let's be honest, there's two offensive linemen that don't do anything on the sideline. There's another quarterback or two that don't do anything on the sideline. There's a long snapper, punter, and kicker that don't do it. So there's really like 35 guys that are really playing. Think about that is crazy. College football has got 100 guys on the sideline. So the NFL, if they want to change the rules, make it like college and like that Penn State. I watched the Penn State game this year. I think oh, it was Illinois, no. Illinois oh. right? Oh, if with the two-point conversions. If you're going to yeah. do Penn State, Illinois, you got you to bump up that roster size. Mm. Because how do you expect all these – you can't. Like, I know everyone thinks it's a gladiator sport, but like, what if two offensive linemen pop a calf because they're on their 90th play right. and then they're not playing next week? Like, how does that work? And I know football is 100% injury-proof, and I know that's an old man, got off my yard, kind of hot take maybe. But it's like, hey, at the end of the day, make the roster size bigger if you want to play longer games. Make the roster size bigger if you're going to add a game, which they did. So if I'm Roger Goodell and I have the pen of power, I'm going to say, sure, I'll change the – I'm going to change the overtime rules. We're going to make it a tw- another quarter. you got to play a whole other quarter. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to add another 10 players to the roster mm-hmm. because that's my opinion the only way that it could be done realistically. Sure, you could sit there and – from up in the skybox and say, yeah, keep playing. You guys kill each other. We want to watch this unbelievable high, high powered, high ratings football game. Well, at the end of the day, they're humans out there. How much more football are you going to play? 20, 30, 40 more snaps. I, I don't know if that's doable. That's fair. I sincerely uh, hope that we do have, I was going to say real quick, Dante, I sincerely hope that we do have a podcast listener named Paulie in South Philly and that he looks like Burt Young and we get a, a mailbag question from him next week. We'll see next week. Absolutely. Yes. Go ahead, Dante. Sorry. No, Colin, I just want to ask you about like the, you were talking about Kelsey and how like rare uh, what he did with Mahomes is. I wanted to ask like about the evolution of the, of the tight end position in the NFL, right? Like not too long ago, tight ends were primary blockers. Now there's like a whole subset of guys that are just big athletes running around catching balls, catching touchdowns. what, What has that been like to kind of experience that transition as somebody like in the league? Well, I'll say this: if I was born in the if I was born in like the seventies and eighties, and I played in the nineties, I would, you know, I have a lot more money in my pocket. I probably would have been a third round draft pick, and uh, you know, I'd be a highly coveted tight end in the league. But times have changed, gentlemen. Times have changed, and you got the guys now like Ian Thomas, who I play with that not a lot of people know about. Who is, in my opinion, one of the best blocking tight ends in the league, and one of the best receiving big body athletes in the league, and you would never know about it. Um, he's a monster and this is the type of players that you play with now guys that can run four, six, four, seven, and they are two sixty five, <laughs> and they're just beasts. They're the evolution of the humans change the evolution of, we see how big basketball players now, like thickness wise, like broad shoulders, like, you, you know, extreme examples like LeBron, but just think about the football game, how that's changed. Like guys like Jimmy Graham coming off a basketball court at six, eight, 260 and just running by everyone and just literally dunking on everybody. Um, you got guys like Kronk, who is the best tight end ever to play. No debate whatsoever. His 
blocking and catching ability and his able to, ability just to dominate at all facets of the game, even at year 15 or whatever he's in, is incredible. Um, Kronk looks skinny right now. He probably lost 20, 30 pounds when he took those, that time off from New England to Tampa. So, I mean, he's a shell of himself, and he's still dominant. I mean, these guys are 270. So the game has changed. A guy like Kelsey, right, he's known as a wideout, but he does some things blocking-wise. But he's very, you know, kind of suave with it. He does his way to get in the way of guys that do some things. And they're not really a running football team. But the game's changed, guys. I mean, you guys see, like, Kyle Pitts who went to Archbishop Wood. Actually, a great Kyle Pitts story. Um, Ed Foley had him in camp, I think, when he was a freshman. They offered him as a freshman at Temple. I think Foley said he was, like, the youngest kid he's ever offered. And they said that he, like, jumped to the front of the line every rep and just beat every kid in one-on-ones and, and went to the front every time by the time he got back and was the most competitive kid. And they, I think Temple was his first offer. Um, which – which of, what did he do when he announced that offer, Colin? He posted a picture of me running Posted outside. a picture of Colin Thompson to announce his offer. Yes. My, it was like my – whatever. I was against Cincinnati. I caught that delay across the field. I was wide open. Literally never have had that much room and space in my life with the ball in my hand. And some kid got near me, and I just folded. So I just <laughs> – I just stopped, literally just came to somewhat of a stop. Just kicked it in like second gear because I only go to third, maybe second. I kick it down to first. Like, kid would have just fell. I would have walked in the end zone. It would have been like this whole hoorah thing. Like, I've become some receiving set, but I fell on my face, and that's that was about it. That was like my last catch at Temple, and I was there two more years, but that's neither, that's neither here nor there. But um, no, no, guys, I mean, I, I could go all day about the position. I mean, we could go through every team, and you could just talk about the guys like that are just people don't even know, like Chris Manhurts. I played with Chris. Chris played basketball at Canisius College. He's now at the Jacksonville Jaguars. He never touched a football field until he played in the NFL. And he's the best blocking tight end in the league, in my opinion. I mean, these guys, like, I mean, you've never seen before. You got, you got a guy like Lee Smith, who just retired from Atlanta, who was a blocking tight end in the league for 12 years. You got guys that are receiving threats that are like Kyle or like Kelsey or like Ertz. I mean, Goddard is a, can do both. Uh, Jason Witten's my idol. I mean, he, he's the guy that kind of started the trend of doing both, in my opinion. So uh, the positions, I mean, this year there's a bunch of guys coming out that are loaded. You got, I mean, think about it this way, which is crazy to think about this. Ed Foley and the pay, and Temple House have produced, and the rest of the staff there too, but they're Ed Foley, we're all Foley guys. Myself, Chris Meyer, and Kenny Aboa, all active on this couple of weeks in the NFL together this year, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and a really unique thing. So Temple's got a couple of them as well. Colin, just to close things out, like what what can you improve upon this offseason? What do you work on personally uh, to try, you know, to try to get better? Um, can you take us through just beyond like the, the normal things that we hear about? What does your offseason look like in terms of you trying to improve as a player? Yeah, so I edit it every single year, John. It's a great question. What did I do well? What did I feel like was my strengths this year? What do I feel like were my weaknesses? What have my, my weaknesses been all along? What have my strengths been all along? Um, it's really like a more of an editing process of what I did or didn't do and what I want to remain the same. So it's like any good business, right? You want to open up the books, look and see what you're doing and try to improve. There's things this year that I got in the middle of the season on. I was like, damn, I need to do X, Y, and Z. No regret. Like, hey, I didn't do enough of this or that, but hey, I need to tweak this, tweak that. So for me this year, like an inside picture is just to move better next year. I took a jump in my mobility every year since I've left Temple, really, because I've gotten healthier and healthier since I got to Temple. 
I never had a healthy off season, which is a massive part of a player, obviously, until I left college because of all the injuries I had throughout my early part of my college career. I never was like a green lit go for everything. Um, so I have those now and I'm very blessed to have my health and know it's very fleeting in this league. So for me, guys, to be honest with you, it's, it's get, it's, it's get leaner than I've ever been. And that challenge that comes with it um, as a 28 year old. Now you kind of in the prime of your career here, you want to take advantage of these years and get as lean as I possibly can get as strong as I possibly can get as fast as I possibly can. And that's what every player says, but it's develop that and keep developing my skills as a receiving tight end. I think I can do a lot in that aspect when people don't probably see that. And maybe I'm not valued as that because a lot of players could do it better. And I know that, but um, just continue to work on the things I do well. And then honestly work on the things that the two or three things that I, you know, there's a bunch of things I don't do well, say 50, but take two, three of them, four of them and really address them and make them a strength because you can't just spread so wide. That's the thing about our position. There's so much stuff that we have to do. Um, but I think if you really pick two, three weaknesses and really work on them, they become strengths along with the rest of the strengths that you developed every offseason along the way. Colin, this was, a, this was a blast as always. Thanks so much. Thanks for the insight into the team, to the league, into to Temple. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, talk to you again at some point. And good luck with, uh, with your podcast as well. I guess you'll get to put a little bit more time into it now in the offseason. Yeah, we're rolling, man. Not for long media. It's been uh, it's been a blast. We're adding a couple of new podcasts under Not for Long Media Apron. We're working on that. Um, have a couple of active professional athletes in different sports that we're going to have joined the team, which I'm really excited about, and there'll be more about that. Um, have a bunch of big podcasts coming out with with NFL players. My buddies across the league, some Temple Owls in there too. So, yeah, just keeping that thing moving, keeping it rolling. It's been a blast, and honestly, the first podcast I did, the reason why I did it is because of you guys. And I, I know that it's kind of, you know, I know you know how I feel about you, John, and you guys there at Outscoop, but really sitting in that room, sitting in your office, John, around that Yeti mic with audacity recording. <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'll never forget it. Now, I've changed my ways since I bought different mics and I do I record on different things now, but I uh, appreciate you guys, man. It's great being on here with you. Uh, thanks, buddy. We appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. I used to be able to run off everyone's name, John, and say goodbye to everybody, but you have like 60 guys worth working with you now, so I can't. So, boys, it's been been a pleasure all right great stuff from colin thompson as always really appreciate it hopefully we will connect with him again soon before the season starts so before we get to this this temple basketball team uh that has won four in a row now and came back from a 14 point deficit last night you'll be hearing about them from javon and sam we would be remiss if we didn't touch on a couple of pieces of, of football recruiting news here and kyle i I want you to remind everybody what you said you would do if EJ Warner, the son of Kurt Warner, verbally committed to Temple, because now we've got to we've got to address this. There's no reminding everybody. I didn't say this publicly. I didn't take a billboard out. But we're like, talking about it now. Well, we, I don't know. I don't, maybe, maybe in our group, in, you know, in our private conversations, which which we're now you know, making I, public. There's no I haven't gotten a FOIA request here. Um <laughs> Look, my initial gut reaction told me, based upon who his dad is and just where he's at in his recruitment and the fact that he's from Phoenix, that my inner eye told me that Kurt Warner's son is not coming to Temple. That was my initial gut reaction. I am not always the most most forward-thinking person. I'm not always aware of what I'm saying. Sometimes I like to just 
like Michael Scott said, I like to have conversations and see where the sentences take me. Uh, I, I texted, if Kurt Warner's son comes to Temple, I will eat a printout of this text. And that's where wow. we're at. And that's where we're at. EJ Warner is committed <laughs> to Temple, and now Kyle has to eat a printout of this text. You can Let do the this record this show. week. You can do it next week. You want to season it. You want to marinate the paper. Let the record thing? show. Kyle just Kyle just used up all of the ink in his printer to print out this glorious image that is in t- eight by eleven of ink. Not even this one. So we we're saying before we back uh, went back on. My main concern is the ink. It's not the paper. Kids eat paper all the time. It's a whole medical disorder. I'm going to print out a smaller one, which is like 90% paper and 10% this text. And I'm going to cut out that text and I will eat that. Not today. I, I got Panera coming. I need to, you know, just kind of want to ruin my night. You got to marinate the text some jerk season. So I'm thinking, I, I think legitimately yes. I have to, I have to use like Buffalo sauce, not because of the taste, but more like I'm going to need saturation. Right. Like I can't just eat like dry paper. That's gonna like destroy my gums, all this stuff. Like I need this to be like a little noodly almost. So that's what we'll be doing. Shred it, put on. Some I'm a pasta. man of my word. Man um, of my word. What if I snort? I'll just like grind it up. It'll get into like a fine powder, and like it just yeah. gets ingested. Oh, in different oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Has to be. Eat. Um, yeah, it was very um, Chappelle show Rick James sketch ish of you, Kyle. But that could also there's powder involved in that. <laughs> I also like to point out that Javon is just sitting in like a dark room making these. Let comments. me tell you why. Because I don't want to. I don't feel like getting up and turning my light on. And since like we are not showing a, a visual version of this podcast, I'm like, you know what? I'm just sitting here. All I can see, all I can see, is the glare of the Javon's glare from my glasses. Fully yeah, cannot it, see it looks, you. It looks like a deer. Like when I'm like driving late at night in Bucks County, like that's what I see in the road. It's just like. The bright lights, like that's all I see. Dante, you want to know one thing they never said about me on the basketball court? What's that? That kid runs like a deer. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of basketball, your Temple Owls are now eleven and six, third place in the American Athletic Conference at four and two in the American standings after beating Cincinnati sixty-one to fifty-eight. Tuesday night at the Leah Core Center. Um, again, the numbers weren't pretty. They went through scoring droughts. Cincinnati went through scoring droughts. You could argue that if you know Temple had shot the ball better, this would have been an easier win. You could argue if they shot the ball even a little bit better at the line, it wouldn't have been as tight as it was down the stretch. But as cliche as it sounds, this start this team without Caleb Battle, as you all know, is starting to really show some grit and determination and finding ways to win. Uh, Javon, you were covering the game for us. Sam, you were there for the Inquirer last night. Javon, I'll start with you. I mean, just some general takeaways. What did you see? What did you think? I think for me, the matchup I was looking for all night was Jeremiah Williams against uh, <clears throat> David DeJulius. And it, it, you could tell Jeremiah had this date circled on his calendar. Uh, both players round up scoring 15 points apiece, except Jeremiah Williams went five for nine and David DeJulius went five for 14. There was one possession. Sam, what was it? Four screens the Julius got on the back door running the baseline, and Williams chased them with full effort through all four of those screens, didn't ask for a switch or anything, and, and the Julius couldn't get a shot up. Uh, he did a great job defending the step back all night. Everyone else kind of gave into it. Williams only 
fouled him once at the end of the game, and that's because the Julius jumped into Jeremiah. Uh, I thought that's not supposed to be a foul anymore. Clearly, NCAA referees haven't gotten that memo. Um, but it just like you said, grit, determination. Damian Dunn struggled all night, made the plays they needed him to make in the fourth quarter. Almost cost him with a at the end with a two a long two where his foot wound up stepping over the line. Uh, but he made up for it with that inbounds play, uh, almost turned the ball over in between too. So it, it, uh, a hectic night, a roller coaster. Came back from down 14 against the West Miller team, fighting to stay on the bubble. And now you got a chance to play a similar game Saturday uh, at SMU. So history against Tulsa, you snap a streak against Cincinnati. And then you're playing another bubble team on Saturday. So this is really the meat and potatoes of Temple's schedule where we're finding out what this team is really made of. And then now you got the fans who can think to themselves, now imagine what the team looks like next season when Caleb comes back. So not too not a too shabby time to be on Broad Street right now. Sam, take me back to how bad this team looked at St. Joe's. Um you know, obviously one of their worst games of the season without Caliph battle. What are they? I mean, I know there's more than one piece to this, but what are they doing now without Caliph battle to get on this four game win streak that they were not doing uh, back before Christmas? Well, I think, and this is something we talked a little bit about is how well they've now responded to life without Caliph battle. And this is a four game win streak. It's not a 40 game win streak. It's not a 10 game win streak. It's a four game win streak. So at a certain point, like can't get too crazy about it, but it's a really, really solid four game win streak. And I think having 13 days off between games three and four made this one against the top team in the conference, a really, really tough one. We talk a lot about, um, you know, the offensive production, but their second half defense was spectacular. Uh, That was really what helped them in that game the most. But to answer your question about, how you go from back-to-back games, not scoring 50 points to, you know, now putting up, I mean, 61 is solid against a good Cincinnati team, but I think the defense really helped them out there, but their, their offense, them figuring out how to play together offensively has really been the reason for this four game win streak. Um, Kyle had said, I, we, we were talking preseason about like, you know, what's your biggest question ever. Kyle was the one that brought up, how does Jeremiah Williams, Damian Dunn, and Caleb Battle like figure out life together? And that's going to be another really prominent question next year when now we really see how good Damian can be and we we have a really good sense of what Caleb can be. The, uh, the flow of their offense has just been really, really spectacular ever since the UPenn game. I think uh, without Jake Force in the lineup, things have they haven't lost much. I think they, in a lot of ways, the flow of their offense has improved. Um, Nick Jordan taking that step forward, having a piece in your front court that can score. Because before that, when Nick Jordan wasn't scoring, Sage Tolbert wasn't scoring, Arasha Parks wasn't playing, Emmanuel Akpoma wasn't playing, and Jake Forrester was up and down. So if Jake Forrester didn't, didn't score the ball well, your only source of points were your backcourt pieces. Now you add Nick Jordan, and that opens things up a ton because you have more guys they can look to. And offensively, Temple's at their best when they have a second, third, and fourth option that can score the basketball. After the St. Joe's game, Aaron had said his guys often get spooked when the first or second option of an action or a set isn't there. Now, when they have a game where Nick Jordan is the one that's really that's leading the scoring, or even Jeremiah Williams is leading in scoring and not Damian Dunn, when you can look to second, third, 
Zach Hicks, another example. Uh, yeah, so I, I sorry, I know you kind of you're focused in on it. it's just a four game win streak. Don't get too focused on that. I think you kind of take a step back. You focus on the fact they're gone. They've gone ten and three over the last like two months since mm-hmm. getting absolutely bodied by Boise State. Like Boise State was one a terrible matchup just because of how big they are and how Temple still is kind of lacking that presence. Um, since then, they've played some really good basketball. A lot of it's a lot of it in the beginning was Caleb Battle putting the team on his back and showing why he's one of, if not the best scoring guard in the city when he's healthy. But then the last you know six seven weeks has been this team kind of rallying around itself. I, I did it primarily because, you know, it was meme night at the Leah Core Center, but I had I made the this team has some shit to it uh, tweet last night because I honestly feel that way. I feel like they have some some gall to them. They have some Cheney would say teeth in their stomach that you haven't seen from a Temple team. And probably honestly, even when Temple was making the tournament towards the end, like those Cleef Wyatt, Ramon Moore teams weren't that great defensively you have to go back to like that 2009 10 team where they just ryan brooks and lavoy allen were two of the best defensive temple players in recent memory that kind of just shut teams down like like this team has they're up to number 23 in the nation or 24 in the nation in field goal defense they're number two in the conference and scoring defense and conference games they're just finding a way to win yeah, as soon as they start hitting some free throws life yeah. will become easier for them you can't go, what was it, 18 for 33 or something like that from the charity strike last night? And you got to the free throw line 33 times. Kudos to you. You you put the onus on the referees to make a decision. Uh, I, I don't think enough people understand that about the game of basketball. The easiest way to win is to make somebody make a decision, either a defender or a referee. Like So you won that part of the game, but you got to capitalize on it more. You can go 25 for 33. You're in, you know, cruise control position, but make life hard on yourself when you can't knock down the free ones, especially when it seemed like all game they were just splitting opportunities at the line. God would miss the first shot and then make the second one. Like, I, I don't know, form shoot before you take the first one or something. Like, it was just a consistent pattern. We'd also be remiss if we didn't talk about Ty Strickland's performance last night. Right. Three points. Uh all, all his points coming in a really big way in the final couple of minutes. Like he, his first game back, he wasn't much of a um, much of an imposing threat scoring the ball, but a career high ten rebounds. I think he's probably the most underrated defender they have on their team. Obviously, we're going to look to uh, Jaleel White and Jeremiah Williams is probably their two best defenders. But Ty, the way Ty Strickland can defend the ball and defend the perimeter, uh, as, like especially as an on-ball defender um, against other guards, like he's a really solid piece off the bench. So he was another important piece that I think we uh, we at least need to note. When we're looking, even, so real quick on that, when we're looking ahead, like when you think about next year, I think a lot of people are kind of assuming like, well, is Ty Strickland going to be here next year? Like, is there a role for him in this thing? Whether it's Ty Strickland or if it's somebody exactly like Ty Strickland, they need a Ty Strickland on this team. He yeah. comes in off the bench. He plays good defense. He settles down the offense. Last night, he's only one of two from the free throw line, but he's typically a, he can make free throws when they need him. Off the rebounds yesterday were a little padded. I mean, some of those rebounds were like, he was like Willie Mays in center field, catching them like in acrobatic ways. Like they were just kind of flying right to him, but yeah. he's a presence that you can see the difference in their second unit when he's on the floor versus when it's like a true freshman, like, like high seer Miller. He's yeah, also like, going- Sorry, real quick, Javon. Um, go ahead, go ahead. Like Jeremiah Williams is, su- is like the lifeblood of that team. He's such an important part of that team. When he comes off the floor and Ty Strickland gives him a quick blow, even if they're sharing the floor together, 
pretty sure Ty Strickland has played the most college basketball or been around college basketball longer than anybody on the team. Jake Forster might rival him. I, yeah, they're off by a year, maybe whatever it is. Sage probably as well, right? Yeah, he's played two years at SEMO and then sat out. Sure. So Ty's spent the most uh, one of the most times around college basketball. He's a very, very much a veteran backcourt presence, and you can really see that the way he when he's on the floor, he's the one huddling guys up. He's the one walking guys through stuff. He's the one talking through everything. So, like Kyle, just to emphasize your point, like he's such an important and I think in a lot of ways maybe underrated piece of. Temple really needs him. And and although he's not putting up those kinds of numbers on the stat sheet every night when he's playing well, he makes a huge difference in that second unit. Yeah, Sam, I was just going to add on to what you were saying about Ty as a defender. You mentioned him coming in and defending other guards. It's, it's, it's big men, too. Like, he has no problem digging in in the post and just being a nuisance. He is the guard big men don't want to see. And, I mean, today's basketball, no one throws an elbow to keep the little guy off of them either. So he's just down there fighting with no consequence and I think another rebounder last night who's not going to get his just due Zach Hicks had seven rebounds and I watched him all night banging with big guys Ado, Koval, uh, Laverick if I'm saying his name right Zach Hicks was boxing out and being physical in the paint all game long and for a freshman that is known as just a shooter right now the performance he put on last night, if anyone wants to rewatch and just look specifically at Zach Hicks, you'll be impressed by the way he played just the rebounding portion of basketball. He, yeah, his game wasn't life-shattering, but, like, that was the most physical we've seen him play all season. Yeah, well, like, it won't show up on the box, the Spock score, but that was in Zach Hicks's top three games of the season for well, me how, personally. How encouraging is that because he went one of six last night and, you know, like what Aaron said, something to the effect of like, we need him to be a, like a bloodthirsty score. He plays 24 minutes. We know, I mean, form wise, and, you know, certainly you saw what he did against Dell state. He's, he's a hell of a shooter might be the best shooter on the team. So his shots not falling. It would be easy for a true freshman to think, well, my shots not falling. What am I going to do? You hear coaches say all the time, like you need to affect the game in other ways. And he did that seven rebounds, two steals, uh, two assists, um, and one foul and being, you know, I, I think this deserves a mention too, like being smart and only getting whistle for one foul when you are getting in there, you know, those were, those were some important rebounds that he, that he got. I mean, did, did you guys expect that you would see, um, not that we sit and try to prognosticate and say, or remember trying to figure out a game where your shot isn't falling, but he's going to get seven boards. But what, did you did you think you would see this type of maturity from him early on? I, did, I thought it would happen at some point, but I didn't really have a good gauge of like when that would happen, when he would go from Zach Hicks, the Hicks is checking in to shoot threes versus Hicks is doing something else on the floor. And I don't have the numbers in front of me and I've built a reputation of inflating numbers a little bit, but I think <laughs> other than, other than the Dell state game, this is at least at the top of his uh, most minutes played in a single game. Um, it, so he was, he was, but he, he was getting those minutes and he was, Aaron McKee was keeping him on the floor one because he has the confidence for him to take. Now I'm wrong. Your number is number six. Most minutes played game. Really? Yeah, twenty-seven. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fine. He Has he played your stick, Sam? What's you his, be what's you his most? What, what's his most? Played twenty-seven against Delaware State and UCF and East Carolina and Tulsa and twenty-six against Houston. Okay, so, so he's up there. 
He yeah. doesn't play more than around 24 sure. minutes or whatever. But the reason he was staying on the floor is because he was playing more physically. That was really where I was getting at with that. It's like just because of shot, Aaron McKee has the confidence in him to keep shooting and they'll fall. He just kind of needs to see them fall and he wants them to have that confidence. But the reason he was keeping him on the floor was as Javon was saying, like he was, you know, fighting for rebounds. He was playing a little bit again. He was not perfect, but like he was showing some more physicality than I think we've seen recently. Just to let a little air out of the balloon, uh, I think we kind of hinted, like, if there's still a major weakness on this team, it's the fact that Zach Hicks has to defend a guy like Abdul, Adu, or Adele. Like, objectively, I'm sure he's a nice guy, not a good basketball player, right? Like, he's just not good. He's still got five points on two of three. Like, they can still just, when they have somebody that big with that much, like, body behind them, even bad players of that size have the ability to, like, put up some production against Temple. So let me ask you, let me ask you this question. So, and knowing that, and that's a good point moving forward, does, you know, Aaron McKee do Aaron McKee, Monte Ross, Chris Clark, Jimmy Farrity, look at Jake Forrester and look at Sage and say, look, this may not have been the role that you guys thought you were going to have. You were both in the starting lineup at one point. Look, things are humming with, with you guys coming off the bench. We need you when you come off the bench to just, I mean, every coach is going to say you have to defend, but like this, this has to be your new calling card. This is how you will affect the game by getting stops in that way. I mean, is that where things have to go with these guys? Because again, I mean, Jake Forrester has just came in with a lot of promise An Indiana transfer from West Ham guy is offensively. We've talked about how he just hasn't been able to be that guy where they can play inside out. He's, he's not seeing things in terms of passing on the double team. Uh, Sage, not that we ever thought he was going to be a double double guy, but he's on the bench too. Is that their new calling card? Can they say to them, like, this is where you can affect the game and fill in in that void that Kyle just just pointed out? Well, I'll say this I think there's still chances for those two in the starting lineup. One, we saw Rashma Parks. I mean, he, he was smoking layups last night. Like, it just was, it wasn't a problem. Um, mm-hmm. Like, we know. He plays on one leg, so there's only so much you can get out of him. So mm-hmm. that's a spot for Jake to hey, right, right. I'm still the starting big man on this team because I'm the mm-hmm. best option they had. Mm-hmm. And if you're Sage Tolbert, it's like now the coaching staff are starting to realize and you're starting to have to accept what I said on this show. What was it? First or second appearance? Oh, this podcast, excuse me. First or second appearance? Like he's a small forge body with a pick-and-roll big man skill set. Like he's mm-hmm. not going to shoot the ball. He's not going to post up, but he can defend. He can set a screen and he can catch an alley-oop. Maybe if Aaron wants to be a small ball coach, you can put Sage Tobert at that small ball five because that's what he set up as. He's he's Clint Capella, but two inches shorter. So there's still a chance for them to at the five, but no, you definitely have to sit them down. Like your role is not as big as we anticipated it being earlier in the season. And, you know, you just – look towards the portal in the off season for a big man that can do something for you. The thing about Sage is he's not a scorer. He's not a shooter, but they don't really, well, I don't want to say they don't really need him to, but they don't for when they had Caliph, like they didn't really need him to. When right. you had a lineup of Jeremiah, Caliph, Damien Dunn, either, you know, plug in Zach Hicks, plug in Nick Jordan, plug in Jake Forrester. When, if, if he was having an okay game, like they didn't need him to be, he was the fifth scoring option on the floor whenever he was on the floor because of the other like weapons they had. And I think now that Nick Jordan's playing well, I think that, you know, if Zach Hicks is playing all right, and now that if, if you have Ty Strickland healthy, like you still don't need him to be 
a scorer. So John, to answer your question, I think that's really been his calling card for a while. And it's like, he's either answering that call or he's not Mm -hmm. that he has to be one of the best defenders on the floor or else he's not going to play. Yeah, And Sam, I'll say this, when you brought up uh, his role while Caleb was in the lineup, he didn't need to be a scorer. However, while you got Jake Forrester down low and Jeremiah Williams, whose jump shot is just now starting to come on, like it still wasn't anything to respect at that point in the season. You can't have a paint clogger, a space filler at the power forward spot. You need somebody who can at least come high post and be a threat from right there. And Sage Tolbert still wasn't that. All right. So we have uh, a few mailbag questions to close things out that, that Javon got for us off of Twitter and uh, uh, earlier today. Um, and then I want to close things out with one last question. Cause I think this is, this is really starting to turn into an intriguing season, but we'll get to these mailbag questions first. The first Twitter handle here is my gosh, it's Josh. Uh, any worry about the minutes distribution uh, looking at Jaleel, Jeremiah, Nick and Damian Don all playing 30 plus minutes last night. Yes. <laughs> is my, is my question, especially with Jeremiah, to be quite frank. Like I know like he's, he's 19, 20 years old and he feels like he can just, play 40 minutes every night, but like they aren't easy minutes. These aren't highway miles. This was like this car went off-roading and has 120,000 miles on it. Like last night he was going a mile a minute the whole time. Uh, you guys mentioned it earlier. He's guarding the best guy on the air team every game. He's playing 36 minutes a game. That really concerns me. All that being said, like Ty Strickland's already playing. Like he played like 18 minutes last night. I don't know if all of a sudden you want Ty Strickland playing 27, 28 minutes. I think they like the guys they have. It's just whether it's Heiser Miller or somebody else, they need to find a way to kind of just get Jeremiah Williams's minutes now. Yeah, not everyone's going to be West Miller playing a 10-man rotation, uh, which kind of hurts Cincinnati at times. Like it's college basketball. Guys are young. No one's you're barely going to come across somebody that's older than 23 in college basketball. These guys got stamina. You play 30 regular season games. You play two times per seven days most most days. So, like, playing 30 minutes a game, 32, 33, maybe even 34, it's not that much of a problem. Uh, and with Jeremiah, like, Kyle, you said he embraces it, and it's not easy mileage minutes, but I think it's better for him this season than it was last season because now you got – Jaleel White, who can come in and spell both of Jeremiah's, uh, you know, responsibilities. He can either handle the ball on the offensive end or he can go ahead and defend either the best scorer or the primary ball handler of the other team. So I wouldn't be too worried about it as long as it's not, you know, the starting five all approaching 40 minutes a night. That That's when it becomes concerning. But for college basketball players, it's not that deep to read into. Yeah. And when they're healthy, like they have a decent rotation. Aaron has always talked about their strengths and their numbers, but you know, the, the flip side of it is that Aaron has also said that Jeremiah's body takes a beating and that, you know, he'll be sore. Last year he dealt with, uh, there were a couple of weeks he dealt with cramps and he played, you know, under 20 minutes because he couldn't play whole games because his legs would cramp up. Like I think he's in much better shape now. And I think he's proven that he's able to play through that stuff, but in the long run, you'd step, it's definitely a, it's definitely a worthy, a worthy worry. So another uh, another mailbag question here is from a friend of mine. The Twitter handle is Ange Gold. Uh, my buddy Andrew Goldstein from college. He's a 
comedian, a writer, producer up in New York City, big Temple basketball fan and a Temple grad. Uh, his question here, biggest win of Aaron's head coaching career. I'll hang up and listen. So obviously last night wasn't a, you, know, you didn't beat a top 25 team, but considering time, place, context, what do you think? Is that an overstatement on Andrew's part? Or do you think it's worth thinking about? At the very <laughs> least, I think it's top three. Um, I think just like, I, I think that them beating that Cincinnati team like that is a really good win for them. But the fact that they were able to extend, they were in a really, really good spot 14 days ago, 15 days ago now, whatever. And they had a two week layoff because of COVID for them to be able to play the way they did in the first half that poorly take a, the wrong side of a 13 to one run into the half and then come on the second half and make corrections and finish out a game like that is really, really impressive for Aaron and for the whole team. Um, the only, the other game that comes to mind of big wins in Aaron's head coaching career, which I don't know if it's, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say it's bigger than this one, but the double overtime win over UConn two years ago, similar run that UConn went on before the half. And then they're able to close it out in, in two overtimes. I think in year one, like that was, that was one of his bigger wins against a pretty solid UConn team. I think they beat, they had a uh, overtime winning against SMU. That's the other one that comes to mind, but I can't think of any prominent wins from last year that I would put in the conversation. So I, I would say, I think this is, it's without a doubt uh, up there. You can't think of any because they won five games last year. Yes. <laughs> like they, there were no problem. I think Correct. the USC game uh, early on was probably noteworthy. I mean, USC was undefeated. You're on the road. It's a, a West coast trip that you're going yeah. up against future NBA players. And who was good in that game, Kyle remind us. Uh, he doesn't play for Temple anymore. <laughs> JPL. <laughs> the Josh Pierre-Louis game was big. But I think, I mean, I think this has a chance. Like, I think primarily for what Sam said, because, hey, they were off for 14, 13 days. And, yeah, they overcame a slow start that you can probably attribute to that. But in the end, they've won four in a row in the conference. I think it has the chance. It's a cop-out answer, but we'll know better in, in six weeks if this game was of note or if it's, hey, they fell apart against a rough part of their schedule. So that, that leads me into – the final thing that I wanted to get into to close things out here. So like Sam said, it's four game win streak, not a 10 game win streak, 12 games or anything, but so they're 11 and six right now, uh, 11 and six, four and two in the conference standings and they're, and they're, they're, they're third in the conference right now. They're entering this stretch now where, you know, they're getting on the road to go play a, a, a good SMU team. Then they're at ACU, my question is, do we go from saying, Oof, okay, they're just going to be up and down and consistent young to like, can they really, can they build on this? Like, is this a team with an outside shot of finishing top three, top four in the league, maybe grabbing a, a first round buy in the conference tournament and doing something? Or you think you think they're the obvious shortcomings are going to catch up with them? Like, so they go down to Dallas and just well, another shooting spell, and SMU is going to be like, yeah, not tonight. We're not, you, we're not going to let you get away with this stuff. I mean, are they starting to turn the corner, or is this just kind of a flash that they're going to have to build off of? Sam, before you go, real quick. Okay, coming into last night, Cincinnati was what maybe a top eighty team in the country. That's all you really care about as far as big wins. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati's got some questionable losses that have them. Mm-hmm. in that last 12 range instead of that first 68 uh, range. So let's not go too much into it. Like conference play is still no They also smacked the crap out of a really good Illinois team. 
So, like, let's not right. pretend so that Cincinnati like, yeah, like is something. Cincinnati's a – they're an up-and-down team yeah. is my point. And Davenport, Davenport hit seven threes in two of his previous four games and kept was dropping 20 like it was his job, and they held him to nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, here's my thing. Like, Cincinnati's up White almost fought him. It was, <laughs> it was and, 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 and then Temple's also an up-and-down team. Like, both of these teams, you're going to see some good performances, shaky performances, bad performances all mixed in together. And unless Villanova and Drexel get rescheduled, which looks very bleak at this point, you're seeing all conference play. You got Houston again, SMU twice, USF, Tulane twice. You got to go to Cincinnati. Um, we know I'm nowhere near the biggest fan or believer in the Memphis program, but you still have to go down there. Uh, Wichita State, I think, has to get rescheduled. The second USF game, well, the first technically, has to get rescheduled. Now, this is still the team where you're saying 17 or 18 wins is a good season. Like, I wouldn't get so carried away, but good good building blocks, good stepping stone season. What my answer to your question, John, about, like, what this team looks like by the end of the year, I think ask me again on Saturday night. Yes. SMU is going to be the test. They played Houston well. Houston was, out with, was without two of their best players, but they played Houston well, you know, a couple weeks ago. Again, the Cincinnati team, they they really held in check. SMU's the third team that's right up there with like if there's a team that's gonna come out of if this is a one, maybe a two bid league, then it's Houston or probably SMU. Uh ask me again on Saturday night. See how Temple does against SMU on the road, especially. And I think we'll have a better picture of of really how this team stacks up. Real quick with what Javon said, where it's, hey, if they get to 17, 18 wins, that's a good season. That means they also won 11, 12 conference games, which usually puts you at that like three, four, five level and within the conference. So I think both can be true. I think that they can still get to 17, 18 wins and still be kind of in that mix for that next level down conference team. Um, but yeah, I think like, like I said, there's some hard trips left. Like at Houston, they're going to get, odds are they're going to get blown out in that. Um, but the other side of that is a month from now, the Memphis team is going to be a month further into the Penny Hardaway era, which means a month further more of chaos. Like they could easily win that game. That could definitely happen. So and it, it, the next six weeks are going to be more interesting than I thought they were going to be two months ago. Generally in Temple Athletics, compare where you were two months ago to where you are now. Two months ago, you just got the crack you by Boise State. You thought the basketball program was rudderless. They're now a lot better. And Ryan Carey was still the Temple football coach. So been quite the turnaround. Let's just say this about that Memphis game. This could be another – that could be another one of those nights for Memphis at home, a game they feel like they can't lose, and the way they played against Alabama could be the way they play against Temple. I also feel like – and I I haven't looked at the stat tracks. I feel like Temple just plays Memphis pretty well most of the time. Like even – honestly, I used to feel that way about Cincinnati until this recent streak. When Cincinnati – like when Temple first joined the American game, they played Cincinnati well every time. I feel like Temple plays Memphis relatively well. So – Maybe the last two months of Temple Athletics turnaround isn't about the turnaround itself. Maybe it's about the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I could, I could, I'll just audibly uh, decide that. Uh, yeah, like Temple's beaten Memphis four of the last seven times. Even the games that they've lost are usually like pretty close. Like they lost one by three. Like they play Memphis well usually. And, and that team's more efficient this year than they have been. So that plays in the Temple's hands a lot. This time, if, if you fast forward 14 months from now, Penny Hardaway is elsewhere. The, like This experiment's not going to work mm-hmm. in Memphis. No. 
So. Uh, real quick, before we close things out, I don't think we, we before we got uh, into basketball and between that and talking about Kyle having to eat paper next week with EJ. I printed out a, a much better one. And a little inside baseball here. I'm a big uh, dark mode, night mode guy on my on my iPhone. Switched to regular so that way I had less black ink when I have to eat this. <laughs> so I'm Galaxy ready. Galaxy brain. Yeah. And we don't believe that Kyle said anything about eating anything whatsoever if Temple got Texas A&M transferred Darvon Hubbard, uh, but they did. We didn't mention that earlier. So uh, obviously like, you know, didn't, didn't play much at all at A&M, but had a, a you know, pretty notable recruiting profile uh, before he got to A&M, uh, you know, a, a good pickup for Temple, at least in terms of, Hey, they needed to, you know, build out some depth there, bring in some more pieces. I mean, they need them just about, at every position, but um, just a notable recruiting note there that we didn't want to. Uh, they needed an in, 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 in between the tackles running back, and this yeah. guy's a bruiser that they need. Obviously, had massive offers coming out of high school, Alabama, yeah. Georgia. Oh, he was an Ohio State commit at one point. But yeah, it seems like the type of running back that they is that is going to have a role in this team, regardless. Yeah. So again, next week should be really interesting. You know, we'll, with with the the February signing day uh, coming up next week, we'll have a lot of. Uh, a lot of room recruiting content for you, more basketball talk as well. Big, big thank you to Colin Thompson. Always a joy and uh, a pleasure to talk to him. And uh, thanks for listening to another episode with us. And we will talk to you soon, guys. Bye.